It's another weekly edition of the program where we explore ways and means in which we can live a legacy and leave that behind one day. Today we'll be exploring more about the legacy of entrepreneurship and motherhood. And our guest today on the program will tell us more about this insha'Allah. So we look forward to having you with us, joining us for the rest of this hour insha'Allah. But first, our opening segment, and that is our point of reflection and introspection. And insha'Allah, this is one that will really resonate with most, if not all of us. It is written by Sister Sumeya Mihan, entitled, A Time for Myself, A Muslim Woman's Reflections on Ritual Prayer. Let's find out what Sister Sumeya Mihan has to say about her connection to Salah. She writes, Cartoons are blaring on the TV, the phone is ringing off the hook, my youngest is screaming in anger because her elder sister took away her toy, and the teapot full of milky tea that I just put on to simmer has already boiled over to coat the stove in a tan, sticky mess. This is a typical morning in my home, and the madness continues throughout the day. And then I hear it out in the distance. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. The adhan fills the air as it increases in strength to fully envelop me. I breathe a sigh of relief. Performing salah five times a day is usually the only time I can find peace in my hectic day. It is a time for me to slow down, gather my thoughts and seek the audience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Salah is the only part of the day that is allocated for me, just me. There are five daily prayers a day, and since each salah takes about seven to ten minutes to perform, that adds up to over 30 minutes of private time, and I cherish every minute of them. Prior to the salah, it is necessary to do the wudu, which consists of washing the mouth, nose, face, head, ears, hands, arms, elbow and feet in a prescribed way. And just the act of washing with cool water awakens my senses and helps me enter a state of utter refreshment. Once my wudu is complete, I retreat to my bedroom, a special place to pray. I make sure that it is always neat, tidy and sweetly scented with baskets full of fresh potpourri. The door has a lock on it, so once my eldest child knows she should keep an eye on the younger children, I close the door of my private sanctuary and prepare to pray. My salah begins with Allahu Akbar, which means Allah is greater. Just by saying that one phrase, I become so humble because I know that I am standing in front of Allah in worship. I perform my salah and during each prostration, I make dua for forgiveness and for anything else that is troubling me. Perhaps I had a disagreement with my husband that morning or I am worried about something or I feel scared. I take it all to Allah in confidence 
and let all of the emotions just pour out. By the end of my salah, I feel as if a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I have released all the burdens that are weighing down my heart and affecting my mood, which was previously making me snappy with my children. I turn to Allah for free and always find solutions to fulfill my needs. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said words to the effect, prayer is the joy of my eyes and nasai. I can clear the completely. Salah is also the joy of my eyes and it brings relief in an otherwise chaotic existence. The five daily salah can be linked to a medicinal prescription, one for the soul. They bring you closer to Allah through obedience and piety. And as a result, the human heart is constantly reminded about what our purpose is in this life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran in Surah Al-Dhariyat, Surah 51, Ayat, Ayah 56. I created the jinn and humankind only that they might worship me. Salah creates a sense of awareness and reflection in the heart of anyone who performs it. Just the act of bowing and prostrating with your face flat on the floor removes all the trappings of this world and life. Performing Salah helps me to maintain focus on the important things in life, worshipping Allah and caring for my family. It also makes me realize the innumerable blessings that have occurred in my life and be thankful for them. I can truly say that the Salah has changed my life. I reverted to Islam almost 11 years ago. Looking back, I can see the change that I have undergone just as a caterpillar does before shedding its cocoon and spreading its beautiful new wings to reveal the beautiful colors of a new soul. I used to have quite a bad temper. I would never lash out at anyone, but preferred to quietly stew and burn. I kept everything bottled up inside and let it eat away at me. As a result, my self-esteem was very low. I let others walk all over me and never knew how to stand up for myself. After reverting to Islam, I slowly began to learn how to perform the Salah. It was not easy, but it was a goal I was determined to achieve. Bit by bit, I began to master the Salah, and as I did, I found a renewed confidence in myself that I had never known before. The more I prayed, the better I felt. The more I opened my heart to Allah, the more anger and mistrust were gone. It was not simply a spiritual act. It felt like I was being cleansed, not just of my sins, but also of all the negativity that had bogged me down for so many years. The Salah means absolutely everything to me. I am able to connect with my Creator five times a day, every day. It is a one-on-one -on -one connection without a mediator. 
just me standing to pray in awe, reverence, and thankfulness, bowing in humility and prostrating in adoration. A salah humbles me in that I am more sensitive to the fragility of life and the plight of the ever-degrading human condition. And I am able to focus on what is important in life without being dazzled by its glitter. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to be connected to him subhanahu wa ta'ala both within our salah, inside of our salah and outside of it as well. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the salah the most dearest things to our heart. We ask Allah to make us of those who perform our five daily salah awwal waqt in its prescribed time at the first moment available meaning that when the adhan goes that we are ready to prepare begin our salah we ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us in grant us khushu' and to increase us in khushu' we ask allah to make us of those who look forward to salah who wait eagerly to perform this salah five times a day we ask allah to make us of those who perform our fard and wajib of salah and make us of those who fulfill the shurut the conditions of salah we ask allah to make us of those who love our salah dearly who revere and respect the time of salah and the masajid may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us of those who never neglect our salah whether it is out of busyness arrogance ignorance or out of heedlessness of our deen. May Allah make the salah something that we are cognizant of at all times, such that when we are asked about it and need to be accountable for it on the day of judgment, that we are able to pass this test successfully. Ameen, Ya Rabbal Alameen. Do join us after the break when we talk more about optimism and staying positive. And in the second segment of the hour, we're going to take our focus now to optimism and the role of optimism and how it fits in within Islam, alhamdulillah. How is it that some people are able to weather the roughest of challenges, the most difficult of climates emotionally, and the harshest of situations all within the stride of calmness? Others are not so eloquent in doing so or controlling their rage, their frustration, their hatred. And their hatred becomes a harsh climate of its own. When this happens, they end up in fighting a storm of their own torrential rains, lightning and thunder. You see, as Muslims, it is imperative that we follow in the footsteps of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as we will also follow the footsteps of previous Anbiya who were faced with adversities like no other. The underlying key to their perseverance was having their only goal in pleasing Allah. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was pleased with them, they had nothing to worry about. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam described his plight in Ta'if as the bitterest day of his life. He had traveled to Ta'if with Zayd bin Haritha only to be pelted with rocks and stones by the children of the village. The leaders of Ta'if continued to order their people to mock and jeer at them as they were bombarded by rocks until they bled profusely at their feet. Upon reaching a place of safety, however, 
Rasulullah never once expressed rage or revenge towards those who had abused him. Instead, he sought refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, invoking Allah not for his displeasure. How many Muslims are able to hold this type of calm during types of hardship? In Surah 40, Ayah 60, we read, And your Lord says, Call on me, I will answer your prayers. Verily those who are too arrogant to worship me will surely enter hell abased. Every person knows of the perfect storm, the one that runs even the most abled person off his feet into the pits of despair. Everyone is challenged at some point in life or another. And no matter how difficult those matters become, the resolve is always to turn to Allah. Yet despite this Quranic directive, some people find it difficult to handle the situation, developing anxieties at every turn they take, and fearing the uncertainty and longing for a light amidst the destruction. Stress, as humans know it, is unavoidable throughout our life. And some forms of stress that are chronic can lead to fatalities. Although there is a strong directive to avoid bloodshed, violence sometimes cannot be avoided, and it is seen in history that deaths were inevitable even during the calmest battles in Islam. But even in the face of death, the most pious Muslims understood what it meant to die for the cause of Allah. Each perfect storm has been preordained. It says so in the Quran. It could be as simple as being harassed by someone or losing a job, or parting with a loved one or being oppressed by a tyrannical ruler. Somehow, all these storms have been tailored to fit the needs, the personalities and the unique strengths of every individual. So with every message that comes a person's way, there is a reason for good and promises of reward are aplenty. Even if a nation or an individual seems to suffer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises that there is a calmness that will set forth during or even after the destruction that is caused by a storm. People from the Middle East, particularly Palestine, Syria, Jordan, are going through pivotal storms that is changing the landscape of their nations. What were initial peace protests turn into a fair amount of violence and bloodshed. Even for those who are caught in the crossfire, they are able to remain calm and fight tyranny with dua and salah and solidarity. Even in the worst of calamities, Allah provides relief and so Muslims have to remember that with every hardship comes peace. With every perfect storm comes a period of calm, subhanallah, in order to accomplish the same. And that is a promise in the Quran that will never be broken. In order to find solace amongst blood, violence and death, Rasulullah narrates that dua, dua is the perfect way to counter strain and sorrow 
as this would lead to intercession in the Akhirah by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam himself. Without dua and resilience, Muslims have everything to lose. But with dua, Allah answers us, and the same duas fill a person's due for intercession. In a hadith in Sahih Bukhari, we read, For every prophet there is one special invocation that will not be rejected, with which he appeals to Allah. And I want to keep such an invocation for interceding for my followers in the Akhirah. Yet there are many instances where believers forget to invoke Allah for his mercy. Even in the smallest calamity, there are those who forget to be humble and find ways to draw closer to Allah. Discontent rises as stress takes a toll and tempers begin to boil. Instead of finding constructive ways out of a situation that is causing discord, this type of person finds complacency through blaming Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his sufferings. And within this anger, this type of person can also find disbelief in their Lord, instead of finding the calm that will help him or her convey their rage into positive energy that will work in lieu of the situation. In Surah 22, Ayah 11, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And among mankind is he who worships Allah as if he were upon the edge. If good befalls him, he is content therewith. But if a trial befalls him, he turns back on his face. He loses both this world and the akhirah. Many Muslims gravitate towards discontent in the face of undue stress, and this is in everyone's humanness to experience panic of uncertainty. However, screaming blasphemous allegations against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leads to self-destruction as well as a virtue of patience that is quickly forgotten. Patience and calm are the perfect ingredients when invoking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the passport to a stronger faith and a more positive attitude when dealing with calamities in a storm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands patience even in the worst of scenarios. And be patient. Surely Allah is with those who are the patient. Surah 8, Ayah 46. Those who are in this world and are close to Allah will be raised in the highest of heaven. Salamun alaykum bima sabartum Patient be upon peace be upon you because you persevered in patience. Excellent indeed is the final home. Surah thirteen, Ayah twenty four. Inna verily with hardship there is ease. The Anbiya were known to be at the brunt of violence during their prophethood, yet they lived to tell their tales by invoking blessings and guidance from Allah, no matter what came their way. Their level of patience cannot be contended with, but there is certainly no harm in emulating their calmness in the worst situation. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us this understanding. May Allah make us of those who are mindful of him at all times. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. 
And that brings us to the end of the second segment of the hour. Do join us, inshallah, after the break when we will explore very interesting and important topic. We'll be learning more about entrepreneurship. So do stay with us. Shaisa Token has always had an immense passion for people and their holistic well-being. She is the founder of Silver Lining Workshop Facilitation and is a transformation activist. Sister Shaisa Token, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to Radio Islam and great to have you joining us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for having me on the show. I think the topic of entrepreneurship and motherhood is very relevant in this day and age with my generation, especially of moms that are working. Um, and since COVID, a lot of mothers have also started home businesses. So I think the idea now of females bringing in that second income is quite a relevant topic. Now, looking at motherhood and entrepreneurship as a topic in itself i'm wondering what's the first thing that comes to your mind the first thing that actually comes to mind when i read the topic was it's natural as a mother i think instinctively we have the qualities that protect that care that are consistent um, in the way we conduct ourselves as parents um, persistence in the way we raise our children and patient Similarly, I think those qualities resonate with being an entrepreneur because as an entrepreneur, it's a constant hustle and um, you have to strive to reach these goals to maintain, you know, a stable income. So when women have this natural ability um, in them uh, as mothers, they take that also into the workplace. And that's why we see in these workplaces that the emotional quotient of female um, employees and entrepreneurs are much higher than those of the male counterparts because I think it is not seen only as a duty or a task but it's actually our natural affinity to work to have that ethic of where we pay attention we nurture it we love it until it grows to a point um, where we are happy um, at its status whether it is raising a child or nurturing this career or this job um, in which we have a plan for. Now, Alhamdulillah, you are a mother and run your own business as well, Sister Shaisa. How did you find balance within your own day-to-day -day activity? And why is it so important that moms learn to find this sort of balance? The question of balance always, always exists um, when we talk about topics like this. Striving for a balance, I think, is overrated, honestly. Um, the moment we stop obsessing and focusing on maintaining a certain structure or this balance, it becomes much easier and naturally it will fall into place because you're relaxed and you're manifesting and allowing things to happen, accepting that you're trying your best to form a routine day to day. You're trying your best to uh, be attentive to all areas of need, whether it's your own, whether it's your career, whether it's your home life. Um, and I think we are duly capable of doing so much. Um, so as females, we do multitask well. Um, and the sense of peace then, when we stop trying to, you know, achieve this perfect balance, allows us to be more efficient um, because we spend less time trying um, so hard to, to get it right because we're now giving it more quality 
um, in when we can do it. And I think that's the mindset we need to be in. Uh, we need to be in a space where we know we're doing our best, we're trying our hardest. And as long as our planning, you know, our calendars are in order, I have a weekly and a monthly view of what to expect. And that's why I plan better. So if we have these systems in place, I think the balance naturally falls into place. And, it, you know, whether it be meal prepping or juggling uh, the type of commitments that we have between ourselves and our kids, I think satisfying our self-care and our social life in between um, and giving ourselves, you know, attention in matters that are the most important to us. So we need to focus on priorities. And once we have our priorities and our values in order, the balance sort of comes into place. Of course, it helps that I really love to work. It helps when you love what you do, because then it's not seen as a chore and a burden and uh, the disdain of it doesn't come into place. So whether it's weekends or, or, or late at night, um, if you enjoy what you're doing, you will make the right time to do it and to achieve your goals that you're setting out. And it doesn't become then overwhelming. So. The ability to be flexible also, I think females need to really um, learn from this because it helps with this mental idea of balance. Um, and that, that, that's actually how I would suggest uh, people go about achieving this. Now, in keeping with this theme that we're talking about, you know, a while back, Forbes magazine did a very interesting article. And the article stated that mothers make the best entrepreneurs as they know how to save, or where to save on items, and how to budget well. What are your thoughts on this, Sister Shaisa? So when it comes to women and saving and budgets, I think our religion, alhamdulillah, you know, with the past and the Prophet Wasallam's wives and the way they ran their households and stories of history, um, we tend to have an idea that Islam has always emphasized the role of women as being the caretakers of the money. I think as women, definitely, we're all probably in the same boat because we are generally more thrifty. And it, it's probably also something that's very natural within us because um, I would like to think the consciousness of needs and necessities to run a household um, rests on the shoulders of the female. Uh, we are more in tune about what uh, we require um, to run the family to satisfy the needs of others. A consequence of this knowledge is the fact that while we are independent, our Islam emphasizes that for a man, the duty is to provide, to fund the home, while the woman's duty is to protect that wealth and, of course, protect and care for the well-being of the home and its members. So, therefore, when using this money for the home expenses, whether it's cash or card, it allows women to buy everything that is needed within a certain amount. And when I say within a certain amount, this is actually called budgeting because we're living within our means. And a budget cannot be drawn up without the realistic idea of income, an estimated idea of expenses. And it takes a very clear fe a clever female in this regard to understand that whatever is left behind that portion of savings, alhamdulillah, will see to our luxuries, our lifestyle, our spoils, and, and add to a fuller life experience. And I think when we think about that in terms of how we budget and we educate ourselves on, you know, for periods of where we do spend more, we are 
able to more control our lifestyle and be happy within it because there are different types of budgets. There are different types of lives and we cannot compare to all and, and everything. And we, that's when I said earlier on, when we learn to live within our means, we create a life that is comfortable, that is satisfying and that is fuller for us because each family is so unique in how they spend their money, how they live their life and to develop the quality of life, I think, rests within this budget and on the shoulders of the female. You know, Sister Shaisa, we often mention this, and this is a point of honor, and we know that mothers are a child's first school or madrasa. What are some of the important life lessons that you think our children can learn from us while they observe and watch us work, build our businesses, and also help us when needed? So previously I've answered a question like this where I was told, you know, mothers are the first point of contact and therefore they are the first learning experience um, for the children. In my 20s, when I had my first son at 23, I would have definitely answered this very differently because I took that role of the lap of the mother being the first madrasa very seriously. You know, I knew very clearly the lessons, the habits, the way of life that I wanted for my children. Um, and I had this whole mapped out plan of how what type of parent I would be and what type of, of child they would be and then you know I had three subsequent children before the age of 30 and all four sons um, so I quickly realized the responsibility of parenthood is actually best when it is shared and and some of us alhamdulillah have that privilege of sharing our parenthood with another person because not only does the pressure of that um, other life that you are caring for be taken off the shoulders of one of the parents and, and in this case the mother but also that sheer exhaustion of you know being the mother the teacher the nurse the caregiver the chef and so on that becomes less um, uh, placed on the shoulders of one and that's a paradox because you know Malema, as you are aware I am a qualified educator, so I don't switch off being a teacher at home and being a teacher at work. So when I began, um, I initially decided, you know, my husband and I would share these duties and we would split these duties according to our personal strengths. So I obviously then took on the education and the academic duties, but I ensured that my husband was the only one that would read to my boys and every night till the age of 10 years he did that and I never did that because I felt that there were certain things that they needed to see from a male perspective or for, for a man, for a husband, for a father to do. Um, and whereas when I sat with the homework he never had to do it. So it was a, like almost juggling between the two of us what we would prefer to teach our children whether it was life skills sport or anything else based on our personal um, preference of wanting to parent these children so yes even though mothers are the first teachers in terms of morals and values children often see what we do and they don't hear what we say most often. So it, we lead by an example and they choose actually whether to emulate or not these examples. So, you know, teaching is ongoing. It's going to be lifelong. They're going to learn from you in every phase, in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, you know. And I think I can say this with confidence that 
mothers, we do put in a lot more effort than the dads because they come home often with later hours, longer days and so on. So yes, we are more exposed to our children, but I think we shouldn't undervalue the uniqueness of what the father may bring to the parent, uh, as a parent to the children. And if anything, um, as an entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneur mother, I would appreciate the assistance of the father in this regard. Now, something that many mums experience uh, on this journey of entrepreneurship is feeling overwhelmed. What is it you think we can do when we feel overwhelmed uh, or, or we feel pressured by all the factors around us where everything just seems to be, you know, coming together? We say it doesn't rain, it pours. How do we keep ourselves from feeling constantly in the stress mode? What can we do when we feel overwhelmed or under stress? Well, I think we often feel overwhelmed when we are underprepared for things. Also, Multitasking is a skill that is not for everybody and it can be learned and it's not the same for everyone in how we do things. So often placing too many tasks on our list can be overwhelming and that's why when we take on anything, I always tell my clients, ask yourself three things. Number one, are you available to do it? Number two, are you capable of doing it? And number three, what is the expected outcome from doing it? So simply put, do we have time? Do we have energy? And what is the expectation on us or from us when we are taking on something? Whether it's work-related, whether it's home-related, from our kids, from our husband, and so on. So stress is presented in many forms. In the form of mental health that can be affected, it is a form of physical strain that affects your behavior, your body, your emotions can also be affected. Stress affects your emotions in terms of your mood and your feelings. So in order to avoid this, planning is key. And the elements of what we can control should be controlled by us. Ultimately, we are creating and removing our own stress. So, when it comes to owning this responsibility, we need to realize that is half the battle won, when we realize we can control it. And the second half of the battle is learning how to actually multitask what is given to us in a manner which suits us in our own time. You know, we've talked about burnout over the last two months in our program on various different topics and that is that we find ourselves in this last quarter of the year and burnout is something many women do experience. I'm wondering what your advice would be on how can we start the new academic and work year dealing with our current burnout? Overcoming burnout and stress. Burnout is as a result of us not having a consistent check-in um, with our state of well-being. Some of the signs of burnout are physical and some are mental exhaustion. Others can be irritability, lack of sleep, and chronic anxiety. So if you have reached the stage of being burnt out, you need to take a giant step back. You need to take a step away from what you're doing and reevaluate how to approach it in another way and the way you're doing it. So you remove and extract as much as you can in the form of either delegation, and if that's not possible, taking a day off, even if it means unpaid 
you know, um, and catching up on what is overwhelming you. Setting alarms are very good for you to be cognizant of what needs to be done so that it doesn't catch up with you and stress you out later. Having your phone on silent during your rest periods is a game changer because it takes away that mental um, cue that keeps calling you into a certain work mode. Rediscovering time management and seeking help either from a coach or a friend to upskill yourself in how to manage your time better. You know, in the long run, what you cannot seem to manage by yourself will require re you to reach out for support elsewhere. And don't deny yourself this. It doesn't reduce your capability or diminish your sense of self-worth. What it really does is reduce your stress. And what you pay in the short run um, will largely influence how you feel in the long run and it will impact you later. So it's often like realizing what you do now, working on yourself now will help you for your future. So become more mindful of these TLC techniques, um, giving yourself comfort breaks. Self-care is often loving yourself. And before reaching a state of burnout is realizing and consciously being aware and checking in with yourself about how you're feeling and where you're at and are you doing enough for yourself before you are doing for others. Filling that cup till it's full for yourself um, will really and largely impact stress later on. Can we perhaps focus a little bit on the topic of managing our time? As someone who works with people uh, supporting their transformation, I'd love if you could share with us tips on how we can reduce our stress uh, and how to start to have some of that downtime. Tell us more. Time management tools, things that we spoke about in our last question. So we often hear people say there's no barakah in time or there's not enough hours in a day. So I largely disagree with the sentiment. As a mother of four, a wife, an entrepreneur, philanthropist, I am absolutely no superwoman, but I have mastered the art of working within the time that I have. So if I have certain cues to cook, to pick up my children, to be on Zoom, um, and so on. I schedule very strictly, and if I am crunched for time, I improvise, and that's actually a very neat life hack that I've learned. This is something super helpful, which removes the pressure some days. And it's things like, you know, my boys need to wait an extra 20 minutes at their school for me. Some days I need to make a very light lunch. Other days I simply put things off. So. These are judgments that we usually pass on ourselves or we expect others to pass on us when we are not able to complete a task or do what needs to be done within um, a day or a week or so on. And I want to take that judgment away from you. You need to do what you need to do in the time that you have to do it. And it's, it's definitely a choice. Um, what I don't do is I don't become a self-sacrificial lamb and I don't overwhelm myself because then I'm miserable and I project that onto my family, which is no fault of theirs because, again, time management is something that we need to individually learn. Five tips that I use and cultivate to help me be really efficient. The first is I create a daily planner. Um, the second, I have email reminders linked to my calendar. 
The third, I set time limits on what I have to do and, um, you know, whether it's tasks or duties. The fourth is I use what I have to do what I need to do and I don't create more work. So often people have a task and then they add on from that task another task to do that task. It's a simple thing like even cooking a meal. If you don't have a certain ingredient, then you get stressed out, you need to go buy something from a shop. So you're adding more tasks to a current task at hand. Makes no sense to me. And finally, I love this. It's the four Ds that I do in time management. Number one is do. Number two is delay. Number three is delegate. And number four is delete. I really hope this helps you, but time management is definitely a skill that you can develop. And lastly, Sister Shaisra, each week we ask our guests for their nasiha for the week. We'd love if you could share what would your advice or good counsel be to us for this week, please. And with that, we bring the program to a close. We thank our esteemed guests on today's program, Sister Shahista Token. You can follow her social media on um, Instagram. The handle is Shahista Token, S-H-A-H-I-S-T-A-T-H-O-K-A-N. And um, Sister Shahista posts more about Silver Lining, which is her company and the work that she does, the amazing work that she does as a founder of Silver Lining Workshop Facilitation and as a transformation activist. So beautiful, mashallah. We thank her for her time today and look forward to having her back on future programs, inshallah. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the program. Great to have had you with us and we'll chat again next week. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.